0: No, I am the father of all What's in the box?
1: Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. This week we are going to be talking about Mank, the new David Fincher movie about Herman Mankiewicz and the process of writing the script of Citizen Kane. And joining me to talk about this movie is Matthew Desham, who is Slate's browbeat editor, browbeat contributor. I think of you as Slate's sort of wild man on tap.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, crazy, crazy uncle in the attic. Hello, everyone. You do
1: you do nights and weekends <laughs> coverage, and I always know that Slate After Dark is going to be somewhere interesting because Matthew Decim is there.
0: You're too kind.
1: Another reason I wanted to have you on for Mank is because you are a, a sort of Hollywood historian. Um, you have a book on Clyde Bruckman, the silent comedian and director. You, in general, seem to be interested in Hollywood history and things from from that period. Um, and so you have written a factor fiction browbeat post about what's true and what's not in Mank, and that's a lot of stuff to go through right there. That's <laughs> <laughs> Not all we'll talk about, but it's some of the things that we'll talk about, and uh, and in general are just interested as am I in this period of, of classic Hollywood. So, one of the things I want to do in this spoiler special is to get into you know how this this movie deviates from history and condenses history and does different things with what actually happened. But of course, we are also talking about it as a work of art and fictional document. So, I think I'll start off the way I usually do with these spoiler special podcasts and just ask, "What did you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Would you send your friends to this movie?"
0: Thumbs sideways, I guess. It would depend on the friends. It's a a really beautiful-looking movie. The photography, the Black and White cinematography is gorgeous. It is entertaining for the most part. It gets kind of in the weeds in some of the Hollywood stuff. I would say it's like... If you're somebody who knows, like, a, a little bit about Hollywood history, you'll love it. If you're somebody who knows a little bit more about Hollywood history, there'll be moments where you're just, you know, shaking your fist at the screen. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty well-made movie.
1: Yeah, that brings up the question of who it was made for, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later on. I mean, you and I would seem to be in this movie's ideal target audience, right? We both have seen Citizen Kane, I'm sure, many, many times. We've probably read biographies of many of the major figures that appear in this movie. We're sort of, like, fertile nerd ground for this, this movie to take. Take seed in. And yet, at the same time, as you say, people of that ilk are the ones that are most likely to notice uh, what doesn't belong in the movie and um, and the stuff that it, that it gets wrong. Um, yeah, I think I went into Mank with such high expectations between really being a pretty big David Fincher fan. I mean, not blindly so. He's made some movies I don't like, but certainly I think he's one of the more exciting filmmakers out there. And him taking on this subject matter with this cast seemed so fascinating that I think I experienced it as a little bit disappointing just because, as I say in my review of it on slate it's diffuse like this is a movie that doesn't quite know what it wants to be about and it's about a lot of different things at once and i think while being seduced by the beautiful surfaces of it and the look and sound that we'll talk about I kind of find myself around 20 minutes in when the first fake real change blips appear <laughs> yeah, up those in the corner. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't because of them, but around the timing of that first real change, I found myself thinking, where is this movie actually going and whose story does it want us to focus on and care about? So let's get into um, just exactly what it is trying to cover. I, I start off by saying that it's about the process of writing Citizen Kane. It's actually about a very specific moment. It's one of those biopics that's about a very specific slice. Of of its subject's life. Can you talk about where Herman Mankiewicz is at in his life and career and just geographically as we start this movie?
0: Yeah. Uh, he is, uh, at the beginning of the movie, we see him in Victorville, California, which is a town, small town in the middle of nowhere, checking into a ranch. And the reason he is there is because he has broken his leg uh, horribly uh, in an automobile accident. I think he was actually semi Fleeing Los Angeles, like it was, there was a deal where his wife didn't actually know he was planning to go to New York, uh, and he caught a ride with this guy and broke his leg. Long story short, he checked into this ranch for a month and a half, and over that period produced one of the. I mean, we'll get into the authorship questions, but a, a draft of Citizen Kane, and it focuses on, you know, that that slice, and then there are flashbacks that go back as far as 1930 of the events that brought Mankiewicz to writing the script. I guess.
1: Right. So the basic time frames we're in are the the present day of the movie, right? Which is I guess nineteen forty when he's writing. Yeah, yeah. it's Cain. like
0: February through March of nineteen forty is when they were doing that writing.
1: Right. When he's holed up in this kind of cottage in the desert in Victorville, California, with and this becomes important, the people he's holed up with. He's holed up with a German nurse who's there to take care of his leg, which isn't traction at first, and it slowly gets a little bit more usable. And with this typist, this young British woman who was assigned to be his secretary, who he dictates the screenplay to. And as you say, in real life, he was also holed up with John Houseman, the actor and producer and former collaborator with Orson Welles, who was sort of brainstorming on the screenplay with him right there in the cabin. The movie makes that. A different setup and has Hausman just sort of come in for occasional brow-beating sessions about how the writing is going.
0: It's kind of wild. It's like they just, I think they just didn't know what to do with Hausman if he was in the other scenes there as a character, which he would have been because in real life he was, you know, uh, he and um, Mankiewicz each had one bedroom in a two-bedroom suite and were in the common area working on the movies. And this one, they put the nurse in one bedroom, the Rita Alexander, the typist in the other, and set Mank up in the living room and then they sent Hausman off to like, Uh, another hotel. But it's clearly, it's one of those things where it's like, well, these scenes would work better with fewer characters, so let's amount a pretext to remove a character.
1: (laughs) Right. And as you point out, it also makes Hausman have a more expository role in the narrative, right? Because he can come swooping in and say, hey, how's the script writing going? And then deliver his verdict on how it's going. In fact, maybe we should drop a clip in here uh, of of that visit that Hausman makes early on to the Victorville Ranch House, because I think it starts to get into the question of the script that he's writing and whether it's it's something that's going to be filmable and sort of both what makes it such a radical script when it is eventually turned into a movie and what makes everybody think it's going to be such a failure
0: all i am saying is no one can write like that but i can write like that houseman i have the narrative is one big circle like a cinnamon roll not a straight line pointing to the nearest exit you cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours all you can hope is to leave the impression of one nobody expects shakespeare People aren't spending their hard-earned 25 cents to see Macbeth. Maestro the dark-faced boy, did Macbeth. Voodoo, Macbeth. Don't be fooled, he's a showman. Busker, reveling in sleight of hand. Save yourself the trouble, be done in 60 days. He'll get this, and the audience will too. Stop worrying, have a pickle. No, oh, thank you, I'm not hungry. Haven't been since we got here. Cheerio. Write hard. Aim low. Uh, uh. So yeah, so this clip kind of gets into some of the stuff that I found a little frustrating about the movie, because you can hear that conversation. It's one of those biopic conversations that exists for the subject of the film to sound like a genius, which means that other people sound like less of a genius. And in this case, John Hausman sounds like a fool, but he was not. Um, It's set up so that... Mankiewicz gets to be the smart guy who reminds John Hausman that Orson Welles once made a Macbeth production, and Hausman sort of says, ah, it was showmanship. But but that was actually, that was John Hausman's project. It, it was his concept to do this WPA play of Macbeth with an all-black cast. He brought Welles in to direct it. Um, he wasn't the guy who was trying to steer people away from doing sort of, you know, intellectual work. He was a, a, a theater director. Um, he wouldn't have made this argument. He wouldn't have not remembered Macbeth because it was his thing but the script needs Mankiewicz to see more than other people so someone who was there turns into, is, is changed into somebody who he was not in real life so that Mankiewicz can get that credit. And that happens in a lot of different scenes with a lot of different characters in this. Um, right.
1: And that actually brings up a sort of conceptual thing about this movie that I should have said up top, which is that the script was written, or at least the original version of the script was written by Jack Fincher, David Fincher's father, who died in 2003. And this was a sort of lifetime dream of his, that he would write this script about the writing of Citizen Kane, which more strongly than this movie does, wanted to make this very anti-Wells argument, right? That um, that essentially it was Herman Mankiewicz entirely who had written the script and that Orson Welles was being a credit hog in putting his name on the script as well as he did. This is also largely the argument that Pauline Kael made in her controversial book Raising Cain about the writing of this script. And it seems to me, and he said in interviews, that David Fincher has less of an axe to grind about this. uh, But the movie still does seem to want to sideline Welles in that way. It doesn't ridicule Wells or make him look insignificant, but he's a small part of the movie, right? I mean, he the actor who plays him, Tom Burke, appears seen mainly from behind on the phone briefly, c- pops up in a couple scenes in the cabin, but is really not a very major figure in a movie about Citizen Kane.
0: Yeah, and it's not, with Hausman, like you can say, they're making this person say things he would never have said, seems stupider than he actually seems to have been in real life. Um, with Wells, they don't, go that route, but they just admit a lot of stuff about it. Like In this movie, in the flashbacks where you see where he gets hired to to write Citizen Kane, you see the automobile crash, and then you see Mankiewicz in traction, and Wells comes over and says, we need to talk. And the next thing you know, he's working on Citizen Kane, and the implication is, well, he's hired this guy to write this Hearst biopic. But that's not what happened. Wells came, met him in traction, and hired him to write radio scripts for him. They worked together on a couple of Mercury Theater scripts, and then they spent like a month and a half batting ideas around trying to come up with a feature screenplay that they could work on together. Um, and it, it doesn't assert, the movie doesn't assert that that didn't happen, but it doesn't show it. Um, and in its place, you have this stack of notebooks growing in Victorville as as uh, Mankiewicz dictates his script. But he went out there with like 300 pages of notes from their story conferences and stuff. It was not a creative project where, uh, it, at a certain point, as w- Wells has said talking about it and Mankowitz too, they just... We're not getting anywhere talking over anymore, so they went off to, Mankowitz went off to write a script. Um, but that initial part of the creative process, that's part of the creative process, and they just omit it because it's sort of, like you say, it's sort of the Pauline Kael theory of it. Um, and it seems like Fincher's version, Jack Fincher's version of it probably was just an adaptation of Raising Cain. Like, that's that seems to be kind of how David Fincher describes the draft from the 90s.
1: Right. I mean, I I think while watching this movie, something that kept occurring to me was that The act of writing, particularly the act of writing a screenplay that's so collaborative in nature is something that's really hard to dramatize. Right. And uh, I'm sure it's all the harder to dramatize if you're actually true to how complex and collaborative it is and to what degree it is. You know, people rewriting heaps of notes that were talked in about in rooms by other people. You know, that is just dramatically inert. So I'm sure part of it was not just to to grind an axe about who wrote Citizen Kane, but to create a unitary character and narrative that could that could carry the story. Yeah,
0: I mean exactly. Like as a, as a narrative, it's not watertight, but it's not bad. It has these two parallel plot lines that eventually intersect. One showing the writing of Citizen Kane, and the other one showing the events that led Mankiewicz to betray Hearst in that way.
1: Yeah, I want to get to those events, but since they take a while to come up in the movie, we'll put them off for now and talk about the flashback structure, which I think these are the strongest parts of the movie. So when we're not in Victorville with a guy in traction, um, you know, drinking and trying to single-handedly write the, the Citizen Kane script, we cut back to Hollywood in the early 30s. And this is a whole different kind of atmosphere, right? A whole different period and is a very peopled kind of world, unlike the the empty world of Victorville. And um, and there's a lot going on there and it's, it's really fun. So let's let's talk about the first flashback going back to, to 1930, where we suddenly see a much younger Mankiewicz, uh, played by Gary Oldman. I don't think we've mentioned that yet, but I yeah, think anybody little... who's seen even the trailer to this knows that Oldman is Mankiewicz. Um, and we see him entering, I believe, the first time we see him in the flashback, he's entering the Paramount Studios. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's Paramount in 1930, and it's with that classic, now we're in old Hollywood flashback thing where he walks through the backlot past the extras from the circus movie that they're always filming on, <laughs> vintage backlots. Um, and
1: just in case you needed to know that it was a flashback, I actually thought this was kind of a fun technique. You see this typewritten legend at the bottom of the screen, right? As if we were reading the script to Mank as we're watching, and you see, you know, flashback yeah, exactly. 1930.
0: You mentioned the cigarette burns earlier, the the real changed marks that they have in there. There's a lot of sort of imitation analog stuff going on <laughs> in that, and the uh, the typewriter thing is another one of those Uh one of those details, but, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's paramount 1930 and we get a a scene in which Charles Lederer is arriving from New York and he's received a telegram from Herman Mankiewicz encouraging him to come out there and work. It's a telegram that actually went to Ben Hecht, but it's the sort of famous thing that says millions are to be made out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. It was one of the, part of this kind of great migration of New York writers to Los Angeles in around the time that, the movies started having sound in them, basically. Um, And there's a whirlwind shot where we meet all these people in the Paramount Writer's Room. You know, uh, S.J. Perlman is there, George Kaufman, Charles MacArthur, and uh, a fictional character named Shelley Metcalf, who we'll get back to later, I guess.
1: That is another of those film nerd scenes where it's like, if you know who those guys are, it's kind of fun. But I can imagine that being very wordy, and why are we hearing all these dudes' names, since none of them really become major characters.
0: Well, it's, yeah. And actually, like, that was something I... I rewatched the movie, rewatching that scene, it's kind of an amazing little, um, you wouldn't call it deft exactly, but the way in which those conversations are written so that everybody gets to say their full name is, is one of those, uh, what's the... Phrase inelegant variation or whatever. It's like uh, with uh, S.J. Perlman, they're they're like, uh, they have letters ask, Oh, Sydney? And he's like, Oh, S.J.'s fine. And then Charles MacArthur, they say the whole thing. And then, uh, uh, you know, you know, Mr. Kaufman, it's like, George is fine. You know, whatever. It's like uh, they found a different way for each one of those (laughs) three people to have a pretext for. Uh, explicitly giving them full names in that Yeah, situation. that classic
1: biopic scene will never not now remind me of the walk hard scene where all the Beatles meet. Remember, they meet with, with John C. Riley and uh, I guess it's it's with the Maharishi, right? And they all introduce, introduce each other by their full names at all times? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's the one. And I'm John Lennon of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's just, it's that. There's a lot of, like, the parts of uh, Mank that maybe grown the most were the ones where it sort of followed biopic conventions the most closely and there are definitely some parts of it where you're like okay yeah that's that's what these movies do at this point in the movie
1: (laughs) yeah and there's not really that much purpose to the to that paramount scene except to establish that you know in this earlier time mank was part of this writer's room was sort of holding court in a way i think was regarded as one of the big wits of this writer's room uh and was also an inveterate gambler you see him making ridiculous bets on whether a coin is going to come up heads or tails um was a big drinker. You know, they have a stripper with pasties on in the room with them as their typist. So it's kind of establishing that there's this dissolute world of, of writer's room guys at Paramount. Uh, and there was also a little uh, movie history solecism in there that I saw film Twitter exploding about. Do you have anything to say about, about that moment?
0: Yeah, I missed this when I was writing The Fact versus Fiction. It just, just floated right by me. But there's a scene where you have them go to a story conference with uh, Salznick and... Um, Joseph von Sternberg, who I guess is just there because they like Joseph von Sternberg. I don't. It's <laughs> there. There are celebrities that show up in this movie for no story reason, besides like someone whose name you recognize should be here. So this is the person. Uh, but they they pitch a movie that they describe as uh, Frankenstein and the Wolfman all rolled up into one. And uh, Frankenstein is 1931. The Wolfman is not until 1941, and we're in 1930 here. And then sort of this is a Paramount story thing. Paramount being at that point. Kind of a prestige house. Um, Sternberg says, that's a B picture. I don't want to do it. And they talk about Universal's reputation as like a low budget. That's where low budget horror gets made. But it wasn't like uh, that. That was later in the decade.
1: Yeah, that's almost a moment of an unforced error. Like, they didn't need to go into that much detail of it right, for the purposes right. of the story and, and make that mistake. It, did, it actually got completely by me at the time and didn't bother me at all. But right. it seems like one of the many moments that this movie is nerding out so hard that it kind of gets in its own way.
0: Yeah, it's kind of set in the idea of classic Hollywood some of the time. <laughs>
1: But I will say that some of the better stuff in the flashback and some of the characters that really come to life come up in the next scene at San yes. Simeon Castle. And that's where we get into my favorite part of the movie, which is the stuff to do with uh, with Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst and their relationship to, to filmmaking. So um, Charles Letter, as you say, played by Joseph Cross, is this young writer who is brought into the fold of these these writer's room dudes at Paramount. And he happens to drop this invitation to Mank, saying, "Why don't you come to my aunt's party?" Right, uh, which seems like a dull enough affair until you realize that his aunt is actually Marion Davies, the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, and who was also at that point a um, a movie star at that point, starring in sort of historical epics um, produced by Hearst. And so then, I guess the very next scene after that, right, is when Mank drunkenly falls onto the luggage yeah. cart and they they drag him off to San Simeon.
0: Yeah, they're at the Glendale train station, and he shows up. He, it's it's actually not entirely clear. Looking at that again, he he shows up, it's like a convertible that's driven by two other people who I don't think are characters we see again. And he's like reclining atop the roof, which has been pushed back. Like he just he literally just kind of rolls in already passed out and then manages to stand up long enough to pass out on a luggage cart. And then wakes up in this massive bedroom in San Simeon uh, where he's been rolled into bed and had his shoes taken off or whatever. Um, and then we, yeah, we enter this sort of uh, Hearst's world uh, in that way through which is nice enough, him just sort of waking up from being blackout drunk and having no idea where he is. Um, uh, and f- from there, he sort of wanders out uh, outside where he he's woken actually by a scream and wanders outside to see what's going on. And that's where he meets Marion Davies, who is in the middle of doing test shots for some sort of Western for which she has been tied to a stake and is apparently going to be set on fire by native americans or something and that's that's what yeah i
1: wondered were. if that was a specific movie i'm not familiar enough with marion davies filmography to know if she was ever burned wearing an evening gown burned on a stake or not
0: i couldn't find it um they, they it, it, there's dialogue in it where the guy shooting the thing says it's a home movie it's but one of his home movies and points to hearst or whatever so i think i think the implication is not that it's a real movie so much as that it's just some kind of vanity shoot that william hearst is paying for to get her some other part probably
1: Right. I mean, to a certain degree, I get the impression that Hearst's unit, I think it was called Cosmopolitan, was its own independent operation, right? I mean, it happened at MGM. It was kind of within the walls of MGM, but not of MGM. Yeah, it was and, like
0: a production deal, I think, like like Amblin has with Universal or, you know, whatever, that sort, of, that sort of thing.
1: Right. And that's why it seemed unrealistic to me to have my own little dorky moment that Thalberg and Mayer would be sitting there on the set watching the screen test of Marion Davies. It seems like that would be something that, you know, they would be far too important and busy with other productions at MGM to have both gone in and sat in on the shoot.
0: Yeah. I, I wasn't clear on that. I thought the implication maybe was that they would, were there for the party and just were staying the weekend. Um, You know, that it does, it doesn't seem impossible to me that Hearst would have invited them up and then scheduled something like that. Right. (laughs) But, but yeah, no, they, they, it was, uh, uh, I, I wasn't, that scene is a little bit muddled as far as what the power relationships in that, in that situation are I guess I don't
1: yeah I agree that that part seems a bit cluttered but I think that the strong stuff in that scene is both Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies who I think is really the big surprise of the movie right I mean just the degree to which she she busts out of that typical ingenue role that you see her in Um, and does the Brooklyn accent really convincingly and just makes Marion Davies into a into a charming and complicated character and also Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst like a great great performance from him yeah
0: Yeah, a really great performance. Really not a a role that could have been done. I mean, that could have gone very badly, I guess. He he has a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of speeches that with another actor would not have gone well, and Dance can deliver those beautifully. He has that just um, sort of cold authority uh, to him. And at the same time,
1: longer. the relationship he has with Meg seems to have something more to it than just power and exploitation. And at that moment, that he's riding along in the, it seems like it's a, it's on the train tracks, right? He's on the the tracks that have been constructed for the for the. Yeah, set. it's like
0: a dolly shot. They're doing they're doing a shot of horses riding into the either set the stake on fire or save her from it. I don't know. It, that's the other thing about it is that she's tied up to that stake, and they're not shooting anything that has anything to do with it. They're doing a <laughs> <tracking> <laughs> shot over in the fields with horses, but. She um,
1: could have been in her trailer having a cigarette. Yeah, but exactly. But that moment when, when Mank is walking alongside the dolly talking to Hearst, I think you get a good glimpse of the the relationship that will become important later on where, you know, Mank is called a court jester at one point, I think, that he, right. you know, he's somebody who whose wit and charm keep endearing him to Hearst and keep inviting him to the parties, even though, as we'll see, he's constantly uh, screwing up and um, and kind of forgetting his place there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which was right, which is what sort of happened to him over the course of that decade. He was which was part of that social circle and eventually drank his way out of that social circle, although probably not quite as spectacularly as he does in this film.
1: All right. So to yank you out of that time frame, the way this movie is constantly doing, and back to Victorville and The Cabin, where the writing is happening, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the subplots here. And this is a place where, honestly, if I had been, you know, the John Houseman called in to give my opinion (laughs) of the script, I would have said, do we really need quite so much intrigue in Victorville? You know, it really is enough for me to wonder whether the drunken broken-legged mank is going to finish this script or not, and the interplay between him and Wells. And I don't think that I need to know all of this side story about, you know, the typist and her husband and the nurse, but do you want to get into some of the drama that's happening uh, in in that story?
0: Yeah, they basically, as you've said, writing a screenplay is not a great, doesn't make for great cinema. So uh, these sections of the script, they wanted some drama to be happening, so they've they've created these sort of subplots. Uh, One of them is the typist, uh, Rita Alexander, was... uh, In in real life, apparently, a recently arrived uh, refugee from Europe, as was her husband. In this, her husband is an RAF pilot, which allows Mankiewicz to basically put his foot in his mouth, uh, espousing his isolationist views. But so she doesn't like Mank because he doesn't think that the Brits are going to win World War II. Um, they and also this long... he's
1: quite unsympathetic, right? I mean, he's not terribly sensitive about the fact that her husband may have been shot down.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's this thing with them. Um, she thinks Mank is lazy, doesn't think he should be drinking, disapproves of that. There's a subplot that works out over the course of this where the nurse eventually tells her, gives her this sort of speech about how Mankiewicz has rescued all these German refugees and he's a good man and an adult. And if he wants to drink, he should be allowed to drink. Like there's, there are these, these like mini arcs about Rita Alexander and Mankiewicz sort of coming to care for each other, uh, not romantically, but kind of, you know, reaching a, reaching an understanding. Um, and that entire arc is just, it's just dead on the screen. I thought I didn't, I didn't think that worked at all. And, and similarly, I mean, we talked before about the stuff they did with Hausman, but, uh, it's the same thing. It's Hausman and Mankiewicz would not have disagreed over where that script should be aiming, um, but they have to do something in these scenes. So they've created that kind of uh, conflict. And yeah, those story arcs, I think, were, were some of the weakest in the movie.
1: Yeah, I think the, the only drama we really needed in the cabin besides the writing was him trying to get into the, the second all, right? I mean, the yeah. stuff about addiction in this movie is is pretty powerful, I think. It's not a movie about addiction specifically. It doesn't have some sort of arc of him struggling with his addiction. He just simply is an addict throughout the movie and never really yeah. tries to stop being. But other people do try to stop him. And so there's you know some ongoing, somewhat comic drama about him managing to get into whatever intoxicating substances are in the cabin, which includes this pain medication that's been put there because of his leg.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the whiskey laced with secondol or something. And as soon as he drinks it, he just conks out. I'm not really sure what that was supposed to I mean, it seems to me that as a system for stopping somebody from drinking, you're just assuming, I mean, all you're doing is ensuring that once they drink, they're useless to you. <laughs> like, they made the alcohol more powerful and more debilitating. I'm not right, entirely certain how that's going to help with Citizen Kane getting written. but um, Yeah,
1: I think addiction treatment in 1940 was not, you know, anywhere also, near where it is yeah. now. <laughs> like, AA was in its very, very beginning days. Right. Um yeah. The next flashback, I think, is interesting both in and of itself. I like this bit at MGM that's coming up. And also it establishes the relationship of Mankiewicz to Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, the executives at MGM, who are going to end up, as you say, providing some of his motivation for, uh, for getting revenge later on uh, on Orson Welles. So 1934 is the date of the next flashback. We've moved up a few years and this time we're not at Paramount, but at MGM.
0: Right, and and this time we're not in the backlot walking past the circus set. We're in the walking quickly down narrow corridors of power. <laughs> version the other. We're kind in of Sorkin,
1: Land. 30's Sorkin Land. Thirty Sorkin Land.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So we what we have like Herman is bringing his brother Joseph Mankiewicz uh, to MGM where he's played by I Tom
1: Pelfrey. Day. I want to say very well. I love that character of of Joe Mankiewicz. It's a small part, but he really really kills it.
0: Yeah. Every time he pops up his relationship to Herman is pretty different and uh he, he he nails that like the the different uh demeanors he has to him at different points in their in their lives i would say
1: the moment that they break into a conversation at, at L.B. Mayer's office, there's this um this fight that he's in the middle of with an employee. And I wonder if you know what the specific shout out there is. This was like one of my little film history nerd out moments. And there's not enough background that you would you would ever know unless you had read this exact exchange. But almost word for word, that's an exchange that Mayer had with John Gilbert, the silent heartthrob uh, who was sort of on the decline in these days in the, in the early 30s. Um, and was known for, you know, his alcoholism and his paranoia and his uh, his. <laughs> Penchant for toting guns around with him at all times and waving them in front of people. I mean, he was just a very unstable guy who Louis B. Mayor couldn't stand and they couldn't stand each other. And that exchange that they have where he's throwing him out and says, I'll cut your balls off, and then John Gilbert says, Well, even when you do, I'll be more of a man than you are. That's, you know, a sort of much cited story about him and John Gilbert. So that actually embedded in there is sort of a story about the end of the silent era in some ways, right? Because that's a great silent star who is just about to be fired by L.B. Mayer. But in the movie, it's really essentially just in there to show, you know, L.B. Mayer is a difficult boss and a testy guy who will throw you out of his office at the drop of a hat.
0: And also will turn turn around at, at the drop of a hat. Like the other piece of that is that he comes out just screaming at this guy and immediately is friendly and polite to Herman and uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, like just just like flipping a switch.
1: Right. And very soon after that, flips a switch to another famous side of L.B. Mayer, which is being this kind of sentimental manipulator, right? Because he suddenly bursts in with these guys in tow, the Mankiewicz brothers, into a room in which all of MGM's talent has been assembled. And we see these people who I think vaguely are supposed to be Greta Garbo and Shirley Temple. And I don't even know who they're all supposed to be because nobody's really identified. But a bunch of, you know, movie star like types are arrayed on uh, risers, and he tells them all that they have to have a 50% pay cut. Is that right? Yeah,
0: that's right. He, th- What had happened was that um, FDR had, had the bank holiday. This section, by the way, it says in the, the little screenwriting typo thing that it's in 1934, but it's both Joseph Mankiewicz and going to MGM and the bank holiday were in 1933. I think they've just mislabeled this in the film because if that is 1933, then all the flashbacks move in chronological order. But that's neither here nor there, really. FDR had closed the banks. There was the, the bank holiday in, I guess, March of 1933, where they were closed for a while to stop runs on the banks because that this was that It's a Wonderful Life era of everyone trying to withdraw their money at once. Um, and Mayer uh, was the first of the studio heads to do this, but not the last, went and told his staff that they weren't going to be able to make payroll, basically, and that he wanted everyone to take a 50% pay cut until the banks reopened uh, for, you know, two months or whatever, um, and gave a speech, more or less, as you see it in Mank, where he just very says, you know, families root for each other in good times and take care of each other in bad times, and that's why I'm asking you all to take half your pay for the next two months, which they agreed to do. Um, And then other studios followed suit, did the same thing. A lot of people got a lot less money. Some of the studios paid their employees back after the fact. mayor did not, although he did... Swear that he had done it, and also leaving that scene, apparently remarked to another executive like, "How'd I do after just this like total phony baloney breakdown and crying on stage uh, for the benefit of his employees?" Yeah.
1: <laughs> I forget who it was. It said, but somebody who was an MGM possibly executive or or a contract player said that the best actor on the MGM lot at any given moment was yeah, lb exactly. Mayer. Right? I mean, he was just this person who was extremely good at bursting into tears on cue in order to get what he wanted from anyone. And although I would have objections to some characterizations of other figures in this movie, I actually think that for what little he sketched in, L.B. Mayer is great and is played beautifully by Arliss Howard. I, I really believed in in that character, and I saw all those contradictions that you, you read about when you read a biography of Mayer. Irving Thalberg, on the other hand, one of the most fascinating figures in the history of Hollywood, gets really unfairly stereotyped, I think, in his brief little role as a kind of toady, which is not what he was at all. I think he's shown as this kind of corporate lackey who's always looking at the bottom line, and uh, there's a couple scenes where he talks to Mank as if Mank were sort of a lowly employee that has to do his bidding. And in fact, Irving Thalberg, although he had his complications, was a tremendous fosterer of talent, uh, loved to throw money at the right project, and just was a, a way more interesting person than this movie gives him credit for.
0: Yeah. So we're at this birthday party, and um, the Thalbergs have just come back from Berlin. Hitler is on the rise. Everyone, it's another scene where they have you know, 90 cameos of people that are just barely identified, like I think Charlie Chaplin is there playing happy birthday. Uh, In any event, they talk politics and Marion Davies is in her sort of a, a naive way manages to piss off everyone in the room by first talking about Hitler as somebody who they should be taking seriously because so many Germans support him. And then by leaking innocently the information that Rex Tugwell, who was an FDR cabinet member who was also there at that party, Leaking the information that he was a cabinet pick that Hearst supposedly helped FDR make, that FDR had asked him, basically, that Hearst had chosen FDR's cabinet is the thing she kind of says in conversation. She sort of leaves the party, not in disgrace, but is just kind of like, I'm going to go take a walk. But Mankiewicz has been listening to what she says and has been impressed with it and follows her outside, and they have a conversation walking through the grounds of San Simeon.
1: Yeah, to me, this is, I mean, when I think of the movie, this is the scene that I remember first. I don't know that it's necessarily the best scene, but between, you know, just the beautiful backdrop and just the the strangeness of them walking next to these cages full of, or kind of Pens full of giraffes and elephants um, in full evening gear while they have this conversation. It really, to me, brought, I don't know, it wasn't actually filmed at San Simeon. I think they found some buildings to, to, to dress to look like San Simeon. But it gave me that feeling of time travel and being transported to how how strange those parties must have been. And also, I just think those are, these are the two best written characters and best performed characters in the movie, uh, Mank himself and and Marion Davies. So the idea that they're forging this kind of platonic friendship and that it's somewhat based around, you know, their shared um, misfit status in the in the castle is is both interesting dramatically in itself. And it sets up the writing of Citizen Kane. Right. Because the idea is that, in part, it is this image of the kept woman in the in the castle that starts to inspire him for his Kane screenplay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I agree with you. That's one of the scenes that just plays beautifully. Um, Oldman and, and Seifert have just, I think, really good chemistry on screen and really get the dynamics of that sort of relationship.
1: Right. So that scene establishes their relationship, which will be one of the hearts of the movie going forward, and also begins to establish the political clout that William Randolph Hearst has, which becomes really important later on. Matt, I'm going to pause the conversation for just a second for a word from our sponsor this week. Okay, back to our conversation. After that, uh, we've got a little bit more nonsense in Victorville, where (laughs) Mank has started Breaking into the second all bottles, he gets in trouble for that. Uh, There's more questions about whether Wells is going to fire him for not finishing the screenplay on time. Can I just say, as a writer who's constantly writing on deadline, and you're the same, weren't (laughs) you disturbed by the idea that his 90-day deadline got reduced to 60 days? Terrifying. And he's supposed to just, I mean, one-third, and he's supposed to just roll with it?
0: They had him locked up in a in a hotel room. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> I will say this: if anybody wants to to send me to like a, a luxurious and uh, deserted ranch for ninety days and then tell me it's really only for sixty days, I will somehow get over it. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll even have my leg broken. Exactly. In well,
0: I don't, for that. you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> depends on the ranch.
1: <laughs> in one place, maybe not three. Like make. So I guess maybe that should bring us to the next big subplot, which becomes the driver of the rest of the movie, really, which is the 1934 gubernatorial race for California. Uh, It's pretty late in the movie for such a a major plot to enter. Like if I were giving script notes on this script, I would sort of say, can we introduce Upton Sinclair and this governor stuff a little earlier? But will you catch us up on the governor stuff?
0: Yeah. So um, it kind of comes out in the scene before it kind of comes out in the birthday scene. Uh, part of the political conversation is about Upton Sinclair, and they establish basically that Hearst hates him. But
1: um, Upton Sinclair, being the muckraking novelist, right, yes. who would have been known at this point for exposing the meat industry,
0: right? Um, yeah. So that's 1906. He writes The Jungle and becomes sort of a celebrated muckraker. Um, by this point, he has had like seven careers, basically. Uh, by by the 30s, he had um, he continued muckraking, got into some public trouble over an affair that he had wrote novels, wrote political stuff, had been writing for years and was essentially just like a celebrity socialist, let's say, living in California at this point. And the Democrats recruited him to run for governor against Frank Merriam, who was running for re-election. He had been, I think he'd been the lieutenant governor and the existing governor had died and then he'd become governor. So he hadn't actually ever won an election, Merriam. And Sinclair, being Sinclair, was like, sure, I'll do it. And he wrote this pamphlet with his plans for the state, which was called Epic and Poverty in California. And basically, his idea was that at this point, there was a a lot of agricultural land that was kind of lying fallow because of the economic depression. And he wanted to seize that land and basically do a California-style WPA program where, you know, homeless and unemployed people would be hired to work it and factories that were being you know, falling into tax liens and things would also be seized by the state. The idea was that he would create these sort of self-sustaining communal communities out of the unused resources of the state of California. Uh, to do that, he was doing some things that just would never, like, he wanted to pay these people working on these farms in, in a state script and had not thought through the complications of, like, the state of California deciding to issue its own money. There were a lot of good ideas in it. There were a lot of things that were not as well thought But there were enough things that would have cost the business leaders of California a lot of money that the entire state mobilized against it. And not all of his plans were that pie in the sky. He wanted a progressive income tax. He wanted to get rid of the sales tax. It was a grab bag of sort of socialist reforms and some really ambitious uh, reaching stuff with the community farm projects he wanted to do.
1: And as you get into in your uh, in your fact or fiction about this movie, it is actually true that, that Mayer and Thalberg mobilized against him, right? And also true that they decided to create these fake news kind of newsreels interviewing people about who they would vote for that had been staged. All that actually happened. Yeah,
0: I mean, basically, everyone with any money in the state did everything they could to make sure Sinclair did not become governor. And that included Harry Chandler in, in, at the Los Angeles Times. and included Hearst at the Chronicle. Um it included Mayer and Thalberg. But it this in this in the movie, in Mank, it sort of sets it up that Thalberg is creating propaganda and be mayor and doesn't necessarily know that it's happening, uh, but that wasn't that wasn't actually the case. Everybody was involved. It was kind of an all hands on deck thing for the the capitalist class,
1: right? If anything, Mayer was more conservative, right? I think he was the chair of the Republican Party in his his area. I mean, he was like he was buddies with all kinds of politicians.
0: He was, yeah. He, he what he did. One of the things that he did. I mean, they did all kinds of shit, but one of the things that they did was uh, Mayor actually it wasn't mayor first it was the whoever was running fox at that time let it be known that if upton sinclair were elected governor uh he would be moving the studio to florida immediately um and then the other studio had started saying the same thing and then mayor i think it was mayor went to his employees and said basically if you want to keep your jobs frank Merriam has to win so as of now you're all supporting the frank Merriam campaign and i'm going to be taking donations out of your paychecks for down the line people um they, if you worked at MGM at that point, you were you were donating to Merriam. Uh, people who weren't paid weekly um, were able to opt out of that, and and some did. Um, in this movie, it's set up that Mankiewicz does not donate to the Merriam campaign, but there's no evidence that that happened.
1: Well, this is something that you write about really interestingly in your Fact or Fiction, which is this this movie has a tremendous amount of interest, for story reasons, in setting up Mankiewicz as this sort of leftist firebrand, and a little bit along with Marion Davies, right? That they are the only ones who realize the danger of Hitler and Europe. And he seems to be the only one at the studio who stands up against this idea of creating fake news to kill Upton Sinclair's c- campaign. And all of that appears to have been just invented whole cloth for the movie to to give Mankiewicz a really good motive to um to destroy William Randolph first.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, and like throughout this movie tries to lift as much from Citizen Kane as it can, because why wouldn't you? And so it has to have something in the... Victorville scenes where Mankiewicz is trying to regain something he's lost or whatever. And, and this makes an argument that what he lost was, I don't know, his political innocence or his faith in capital. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly. But it, it doesn't quite, you can see what it should do structurally, but it doesn't quite work. Because for one thing, I think that the gubernatorial campaign in that story is more interesting than the writing of Citizen Kane. I mean, I, I don't just, as a subject of for a movie, a lot more is happening. But to get into the guts of that, Mankiewicz is not necessarily like the right, you know, uh, the right knife to cut that food I guess yeah
1: maybe that's why that scene although it's stylistically gorgeous that um that scene of the election night party right where uh, Mankowitz shows up he gets drunk they bet on who's going to win the election and we're sort of cutting in between these you know leaderboards on the wall showing who's ahead and the increasingly drunken Mank and you know there's sort of one of those montages with lots of dissolves to different neon signs and right. glasses Co- of cocktails of and things and... like that right and it's uh, a yeah. it's a wonderful pastiche of that style of filmmaking of the time. But dramatically, it feels very muddled to me, because it's something that we didn't know that Mank cared strongly about until probably 10 minutes before in the movie, right, when he caught a quick glimpse of an Epton Sinclair speech. (laughs) And it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to kind of, to to have the dramatic weight that it would need to have to be more than just a stylish, stylish montage.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I think there's more than enough for an entire movie in that campaign. Um, and if you wanted to focus on Thalberg and, and Mayer, you could do it too. But it, it just, Mankowitz is just out of place there. Like, he was not, he wasn't that guy. And there's nothing in the movie until he sees that Sinclair speech to suggest that he was at all uh, interested in any of this, um, this stuff. It gives him another reason. I mean, I think that the screenwriters uh, know that motivation is a little bit thin because they give also. Mankiewicz, a a personal reason to feel it's a betrayal, which is they created this character of Shelley Metcalf, who is a test director and sort of, we see him in 1930 as kind of like a hanger on with the Algonquin set, who is the guy who Thalberg actually hires to shoot these fake newsreels. And what these newsreels were is phony man on the street interviews about who you were going to vote for in the gubernatorial campaign. It was just a series of interviews with various supposed California voters.
1: You put a great link in your factor fiction piece to one of those actual newsreels. Maybe we could listen to a little clip of one of these stage newsreels of who are you voting for?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I am the inquiring cameraman. All day I travel around California, the highways and the byways, the downtown districts, the residence districts, the factory districts, all districts. I stop people on the street. I pry into offices and shops and stores and restaurants. I knock on the doors of homes, all for the purpose of digging out voters of California to express their views for your edification. Remember there's They're not actors. They're nervous. You'd be scared to death yourself the first time you face the camera and microphone. If they seem awkward, bear with them. I don't rehearse them. I'm impartial. I ask them questions only to help them express themselves more clearly. I thank you. Now for the votes. Votes from carpenters, housewives, jobless men, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. There's even a crooner hidden in the group. But you'll have to find him out for yourself. All ready for the votes. Would you mind telling us uh, who your favorite candidate is for governor? Sinclair. And uh, what is your principal reason for arriving at that. Well, yet puts a
1: Different different man with different Yeah, as long as we're talking about extraneous stories that were just shoehorned in to, to give more drama, I really I felt bad for the fictional Shelley Metcalf that his <laughs> life and death was just used in such a utilitarian way to advance someone else's story. Like we don't even know who that character is except for literally hearing his name in the writer's room scene early on until suddenly we're getting frantic calls from his wife that he's gone off with a gun and he's going to kill himself because he shot these fake newsreels and he feels guilty about it. I just – to me, I suddenly had this feeling like, am I supposed to have been caring about Shelley Metcalf all this time? And uh, to me, that was just a, a poor piece of, of screenwriting. Like, this needed a serious edit, you know? <laughs> it's, we, did, we should mention it's two hours and 12 minutes long, this movie, which in itself – I mean, I'm not against a long movie, but it could easily have been 20 minutes shorter.
0: You can, But you can kind of reverse engineer the notes that, that lead to the creation of that uh, subplot, I think, um, which is that you – you can't have it be that Mankowitz betrays the hearse just because of the fake newsreels. That's not enough because you're not establishing that. So you have to give him another motivation. That motivation is well, what if these fake newsreels screwed over somebody that Mankowitz cared about? Okay, fine. So they set up the Man- Metcalf thing, and then it's like, well, is that really enough of a reason for Metcalf to kill himself? No. So we're gonna give him Parkinson's too. Like it's just mm. this kind
1: of. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that.
0: <laughs> you feel like it's like it's like one piece of it. Uh, requires the next one and then before you know it you have a guy uh showing his shaking hand and uh uh just just out of nowhere this plot with this guy having a hard time dealing with a terminal diagnosis um
1: Yeah that's something if maybe if, if this was a 10 episode series or something we could have a whole Shelley Metcalf subplot right. we would start to care about him but it just it started to feel very jury rigged
0: yeah. the whole thing Yeah yeah it's you can see the scaffolding there you can kind of see okay we're going to we're going to up this you know turn this motivation dial a little further here regardless of whether or not this development makes any sense for for the story we're telling you. Um, and the guy who actually did make these reels, like the, the way it's set up in Mank is uh, Metcalf is offered the opportunity to step up to d- directing. Um, the guy who really directed these, Felix Weiss Jr., um, didn't have any qualms about it and and used it to step up to directing. I mean, it was <laughs> <laughs> this movie makes people seem much, that many of the people come off m- less cynical than the actual historical people were, uh, and not just Mankiewicz. So from here, there's basically two sections of the film to go. There's a section in Victorville that traces all the different people trying to convince Herman Mankiewicz not to write the script. Every scene we cut back to Victorville for a little while, a new person comes out to see him to tell him this. Um, So, yeah, Charles Lederer visits and tries to convince Mank not to write the script. Joe Mankiewicz visits and tries to convince Mank not to write the script. Uh, Marion Davies visits and confronts Mank over the script. It's just one after another. And between those scenes, we have scenes that are showing basically Mank losing control of his life in Hollywood um, after Metcalf has died. There's the section we talked about where he bets at the Trocadero, and we have the death of Shelley Metcalf cut with that. Um, And then is the final section, which cuts between this circus party in 1937 at San Simeon, which is in this thing, the final break between Mankiewicz and Hurston and Davies, and The finally, the fight over who wrote Citizen Kane is the other thing that that's cut with. So you have sort of a conflict between Hearst and Mankiewicz that is escalating and crashes at the very end of the movie in one thread of the plot. And then the other one, you have finally this conflict between Orson Welles and Mankiewicz over who's going to get credit for the script that crashes. And it goes back and forth between those two things in the kind of classic, you know, intercut two things that are moving at about the same pace towards a climax structure.
1: Right. And once again, I feel like I'm much more comfortable with this movie and I think it's more comfortable in itself when it's in the 30s flashback mode than when it's trying to create drama out of what's happening in Victorville. Even though some of these individual visits, especially the visit from his his younger brother Joe, who at this point has has risen above Herman in the hierarchy of, of Hollywood, right, and has become a power player himself. And uh, I think that's that's quite a good scene between them. It shows that changed power dynamic, you know, but also the affection that they still have for each other. The, uh, the visit of of Marion Davies is also interesting, especially the idea, which I think is true, that she was not offended by the portrayal of her in Citizen Kane, or, you know, she believed, rather, Manx's protestations that Susan Alexander, the not-talented opera singer wife in Kane, was, was based on her. Um, he denied that, and it seems to be the case that, that she was not the direct inspiration.
0: There was another kept woman uh, of some industrialist or other who actually had an opera career, that they there, were, there was an opera house that was built for someone. So that was, I think, during the sort of legal wrangling when this was about to be released, that was something that they leaned pretty heavily on, that, that this could not possibly be hers, because there was this public story of um, another mistress whose life matched more closely to Susan Alexander's life in, in Citizen Kane.
1: But... That said, I think there's one of the the visits in this later period you were talking about, where there's you know a series of pilgrimages to Victorville to convince him not to write that doesn't work really dramatically at all, and that's Orson Welles's visit, which is really the first time we see him as a as a full on character, not not merely a, a menacing voice over the phone saying when's my screenplay going to be ready, um, but this scene in which he comes and and pitches a big fit over who's going to get credit for the screenplay and starts to throw around furniture, incidentally, in a way that inspires Mankiewicz to to write the scene of Citizen Kane destroying a room full of furniture when his wife leaves. That scene really seemed to me like it parachuted in out of nowhere and that it took what had been a zero tension subplot, you know, just up to 11 in far too short of a time. And I didn't believe the relationship or the characters.
0: Yeah, it, it really doesn't. It feels like there must be some scenes missing there because essentially you have a, a very cordial relationship between Wells and, and Mankiewicz um, up to that point, and. Uh, then just out of nowhere, Wells is is offended and furious that Mankiewicz is asking for for credit. I mean, he goes from zero to throwing furniture around in in no time. And of course, it's the idea is that this is what inspires the scene in Citizen Kane where Kane trashes Susan Alexander's room. And then the other idea is that this is that scene in Mankiewicz. This is in the structure. This is the point where you know Wells throws his big tantrum. It's supposed to work the same way and feel the same way, and it it just doesn't work because. You know Kane, we know why he's doing it. Wells is just sort of like <laughs> calm down there, buddy, like <laughs> we haven't seen him interact in any way that would indicate that he has this just ferocious, violent temper, and then he throws a case of scotch into the fireplace or whatever.
1: I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a moment when you realize, like, Fincher has really dug his own grave by trying to make a movie based on the writing of Citizen Kane that inc- includes a lot of images from Citizen Kane, right? And that ends in this moment that is almost a reproduction of something that happens in Citizen Kane. It just draws attention to the fact that, you know, he, he as as talented as a director he may as he may be, he he ain't Orson Welles yeah, circa it, 1942.
0: That's the problem. I mean, any movie about the making of Citizen Kane, and there are like four or five, I think, uh, invites and has to invite comparisons to Citizen Kane. And that's just not just strategically. It's probably not a good thing for you to make a movie that uh, invites audiences to to ask themselves whether you're as good at this as Orson Welles. <laughs>
1: Something that seems worth mentioning as we close this out is that, I mean, it seems like one thing that Fincher, Jack Fincher, that is, and also whoever else worked on the screenplay subsequently, although Jack does get sole credit, um, they seem to be very eager to cram every single Herman Mankiewicz witticism, of which there are a lot in Hollywood lore, into one screenplay. And, you know, that makes for a lot of good lines, but it also means that they often feel sort of wedged in out of nowhere. And I wonder if you want to go over a couple of those moments where, you know, Mank cracks wise in some way or another, that is actually... Ripped from the pages of, uh, of Mankiewicz's
0: lore. Yeah, uh, there's one towards the end at the circus party in which Mankiewicz pitches like a proto proto version of Citizen Kane to the crowd, and then throws up on the carpet of William Hearst's dining room um, at the end of that. And in the movie, he says to the crowd, "There, don't worry. The white wine came up with the fish," which is a very funny thing to say if you've just thrown up, but it doesn't necessarily work in that scene. Um, that comes from a story of Mankiewicz having dinner at, at producer Arthur J. Hornblow's house. And Hornblow was kind of notorious for having uh, sort of rigid, fancy, formal dinners. Hearst wasn't, actually. Hearst had this sort of idea that San Simeon was his ranch. So they had things like ketchup bottles at the table. It was not a—the It was the self-consciousness was not towards formality. It was towards, let's pretend that we're camping. Um, but Hornblow was very bl- much like, you know, cheese courses and all of that. So uh, he threw up in a bathroom that— wouldn't coming back into the dining room, realize that the people in the dining room could hear him throwing up. And that was his, his remark. Um, and then it ends with this just, <laughs>
1: but of course you got to dramatize it by him barfing right there in the, in the dining room. Right. With everyone exactly. Around. Well,
0: because again, it's the thing you're taking this, but you you, you need to have this be the scene where he goes too far. So, um, and then at, at the very end, you have a section where there's what it is set to look like newsreel footage of Gary Oldman standing in front of his house, responding to the fact that he's won the Academy Award for best screenplay. And he says something like, uh, I'm happy to accept this award in the absence of Mr. Wells because the screenplay was written in the absence of Mr. Wells. Um, I think, I don't think I have that quite right. I also don't think the movie has it quite right, but it wasn't something that he actually went out and said publicly. It was a sort of later witticism that he said he would have said. So it's one of many scenes where they take a Herman J. Mankiewicz story and turn it into an event that didn't actually happen. I mean, I think this film has like three things it's trying to do, all of which are very tough. And one is that it wants to be a biopic so it tries to cram in as many details and famous things that Herman J. Mankiewicz said into two and a half hours. It wants to be structured after Citizen Kane, so it has to cram in as many scenes that resemble scenes from Citizen Kane as it can, uh, even when, as with Wells throwing things around the ranch in Victorville, they don't entirely make sense. And then it wants to be a movie about California history and Hollywood history, and it has to. It puts in nods like that, like the Universal and the Wolfman stuff. There's 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 a lot crammed in here. Um, not all of it really serves the movie, I guess I would say.
1: Yeah, I think it is one of those movies where while I enjoyed each moment as it was unfurling, I found myself asking more and more as it went on, Who is this for? And if it's not for me, (laughs) if it's not even pleasing me, the person who's alley it's maybe the most up, you know, that you could imagine, then what is it going to be doing for audiences in general? And I think we've seen that so far in the response to the movie. I mean, it just opened a few days ago, but it seems like it in general is being regarded with either scorn by film nerds (laughs) or somewhat puzzlement by the public
0: at large. Yeah, exactly. That's the sweet spot for Hollywood movies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And as long as it's the end of the year, I mean this is such a weird year that it's hard to speculate about such things, but do you think that this movie is um is looking for some sort of awards recognition and is likely to get any? Maybe for Gary Oldman?
0: I don't know. I would think, yeah, Seafrid or Oldman, those are both killer performances. Um and I could see it picking up some technical stuff just because it is so such an affected kind of facsimile of, of cinema of the nineteen forties or whatever. Um I don't uh I would be surprised if it wins Best Picture, but it's a really strange year. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Yeah, it could be. It, the, I think Best Picture is going to go to like a, a string of TikTok videos that we've never heard of because there's nothing in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Matt, I can't imagine a better person to have come in and talked about *Mank* with me. Um, now I feel like the next time I sit through it, I'm going to have so much nerd fodder to, t- to tell the person sitting next to me. Um,
0: I really appreciate <laughs> much to their you coming delight, in. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, they'll flee even faster than the last time I tried to watch it with a non-movie nerd. Um, but that was lots of fun.
0: Well, I, I had a blast. I, and likewise, it was a pleasure talking about it with you. So thanks so much for having me.
1: So that does it for our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And of course, if you like this show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share with us, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Morgan Flannery. For Matthew Desum. I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon.